You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 60, Do Much or Be Ruined. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, last time we began the story of Horatio Nelson. His career had the most promising start imaginable. The combination of ability and the patronage of his powerful uncle had made him the youngest captain in the Royal Navy. Nelson thrived during the American War of Independence, but struggled in peacetime. During an assignment in the Caribbean after the war, he burned away all the goodwill he'd built up with the high command. He returned to England with a wife, Fanny, but his career was in ruins. Nelson spent a few years on shore, in limbo, waiting in vain for a new assignment, until the outbreak of the War of the First Coalition resurrected his prospects. That new assignment would take Nelson to the Mediterranean, where he spent most of the war, so this episode will not only be the story of this phase of Nelson's life, it will give you a sense of Britain's war effort in the Mediterranean during this period. This time and place will not be totally unfamiliar to you, because Napoleon spent quite a bit of time around the Mediterranean during these years, although the two never had any direct interaction. A lot of momentous events we've covered in past episodes will be happening in the background during this episode. Nelson played his own small role in the Siege of Toulon, Pasquale Paoli's return to Corsica, and the first Italian campaign. Perhaps it's fitting that the two men made their careers in almost the same place. Nelson's early life had a lot of parallels with Napoleon's. For starters, they both married widows from West Indian sugar-planting families, who they would both eventually leave. Napoleon for politics, Nelson for love. They were both trained for a life in the military from a very young age. And both men were precocious, recognized as potential rising stars at the very beginning of their careers. However, as young men, they experienced failure. For Napoleon, his rejection by Paoli and the defeat of his political ambitions on Corsica. And for Nelson, that unfortunate posting to the Caribbean, which led to him falling out of favor and being passed over for promotion. Both men were attracted to politics, almost instinctively as an extension of their character, 
although obviously they were on opposite sides of the spectrum. They were highly aggressive as battlefield commanders, and brought that same ethos to every other aspect of their careers, sometimes coming off as pushy or demanding to their superiors. Napoleon was a lot better at getting away with this than Nelson was. Despite this aggressiveness, neither man ever really struggled to find soldiers or sailors willing to follow them into battle. As we discussed last time, they shared an uncommon charisma and infectious self-confidence. As we'll see in this episode, Nelson shared Napoleon's keen eye for publicity. Both men had a nearly pathological need to place themselves at the heart of every story. I think all of this publicity was an end in and of itself for both men, but it was also a tool in the service of some very big ambitions. Just like Napoleon, Nelson dreamed not only of high military rank and glory, but of political power as well. He frequently expressed a desire to enter Parliament, although he never had a chance to pursue those dreams before his premature death, which was probably for the best. As we saw last episode, Nelson was so incompetent in dealing with internal Royal Navy politics that it nearly destroyed his career. For example, he never did get the message that his friendship with Prince William was a problem. Even after he'd spent years on shore, in large part as punishment for enabling the prince, he continued writing to William to ask for letters of recommendation. It's hard to imagine something that could have been less helpful for Nelson's prospects than a reminder of his relationship with the prince. But Nelson believed this would be his salvation. We can only imagine how someone with such poor political instincts would have fared in Parliament. So at this stage in our story, Nelson was still a relatively anonymous Royal Navy captain who hadn't really done anything of note since the American War of Independence ended a decade previously. Without the War of the First Coalition, he may have been on a trajectory to never do anything notable ever again. But in 1793, the Royal Navy was back on a war footing, and all of Nelson's transgressions in the Caribbean were immediately forgotten. He was finally made captain of a ship once again, the HMS Agamemnon, named after a figure from the Trojan War. Under British classification, the Agamemnon was a third-rate ship of the line. These were the workhorses of the Royal Navy, big enough to outgun a frigate, but much faster and more maneuverable than the bigger first- and second-rate ships. It had 64 guns and a crew of 500 men. Nelson considered it one of the best ships he ever commanded. Soon after the declaration of war, Nelson and the Agamemnon set sail for the Mediterranean part of a large fleet under the command of Admiral Samuel Hood, an old and highly distinguished officer who might be familiar to American listeners as one of the principal Royal Navy commanders of the American War of Independence. Hood's mission was to challenge French control over the western Mediterranean, so the Agamemnon and the rest of the fleet set sail towards the main French naval base at Toulon. Not long after leaving England, Nelson laid out his ambitions for the campaign in a letter to his wife. Quote, in short, I wish to be an admiral and in command of an English fleet. I should very soon either do much or be ruined. My disposition can't bear tame and slow measures. End quote. I like that last line in particular. 
Nelson never deluded himself as to what type of man he was. In the coming years, he would be true to his word. By the time the fleet arrived, Toulon had risen up in rebellion against the Jacobins in Paris, and many of the ships based in the harbor were ready to join in. Hood negotiated an alliance with the rebels, and just like that, Britain effectively neutralized the French Mediterranean fleet and secured a base in southern France without firing a shot. If this were fiction, Nelson and Napoleon would now square off at Toulon, right at the beginning of each man's meteoric rise. But fate had other plans. Nelson spent very little time at Toulon. Almost as soon as the alliance was secured, the Agamemnon was off on other missions, spreading British influence around the region and securing coalition troops for the defense of Toulon, which was soon under siege by the Republicans. One of these voyages is of particular interest, to Corsica, where Pasquale Paoli, Napoleon's childhood idol, was in control of the government and had also declared himself in rebellion against the revolution. Nelson's men made contact with Paoli's agents and helped pave the way for an alliance with his faction. In exchange for British assistance and promises of autonomy, Pasquale Paoli, the great Corsican patriot, agreed to make King George III of Great Britain King George I of Corsica. Historians refer to this new political entity as the Anglo-Corsican Kingdom. The British had barely seen a Republican ship, but had already seized two important French bases in the Mediterranean, simply by rallying pre-existing opposition to the revolutionary government. All that remained was to hold on to Toulon and consolidate Pauli's control over Corsica. But as you may remember from some of our early episodes, Corsican politics were a fractious, cutthroat business. Support for Pauli was far from universal, and that was before he agreed to give a faraway country a say in Corsican affairs, not the most popular of decisions in a place where independence and autonomy were held sacrosanct. Remember, by this point in his life, Pauli had spent over 20 years in exile in England, being toasted as a great Enlightenment hero by every British liberal. To Pauli, the British were friends, not foreigners, and their political system was obviously the best in the world. But few Corsicans shared his enthusiasm. The deal Pauli negotiated had just put Corsica in roughly the same position as Ireland in regard to British authority over their affairs. Perhaps he should have asked the Irish how they felt about that relationship, and who they thought got the better end of the bargain. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, for the purposes of our story, suffice it to say that Pauli would need a lot of help to secure control over the island. 
and the only force on hand to provide that help was Hood's fleet, including the Agamemnon. Nelson spent a great deal of time on shore during the ensuing campaign in Corsica. The fleet was short on infantry, so disembarked sailors did a lot of the work, with Nelson in overall command of shore operations. The task facing the British on Corsica was more difficult than it may have looked at first glance. The anti-Pauli factions on the island quickly coalesced behind the Republicans and formed a surprisingly potent resistance movement, led by Rafael de Casabianca, a former count turned Jacobin, who proved to be an effective military commander. But it wasn't just the tenacity of their opponents. The British were also internally divided between the instinctively aggressive naval leadership, including Nelson, and the army leadership, who were very conscious of their small numbers, and thus much more cautious. Worse, the British and the Corsicans did not prove to be natural allies. Their respective political and military cultures were incredibly different, which sometimes made it hard for the two sides to coordinate their efforts. As they had always done, the Corsicans followed the lead of their traditional clan leaders in both war and politics, which the British found bizarre and slightly uncivilized. They saw the openly cutthroat, transactional nature of Corsican politics as unseemly. Of course, British politics could be just as bad, but in London, the dirty deeds of politicians and aristocrats were always carefully hidden behind a genteel mask. Even the Corsican custom of greeting friends with kisses on the cheek was apparently too much for some British servicemen. And, as everyone who ever dealt with him eventually discovered, the British quickly came to realize that Pasquale Paoli served only his own interests. When those interests aligned with Britain's, he could be a very useful asset. But when those interests diverged, he could be just as difficult an obstacle. And it wasn't always clear which he was doing. So, what initially looked like an easy, almost effortless victory for the British soon became a long, difficult slog. Despite all these struggles, by the summer of 1794, only one Republican stronghold remained on the island the city of Calvi on the northwestern tip of Corsica. Following their now well-established routine, the army wanted to take the cautious approach, surround the city by land and sea, and wait a few months for supplies to run out. But the navy leadership, including Nelson, favored an immediate direct assault. They settled on a compromise. The British would not storm the city but they would take a slightly more proactive course of action than the army recommended. Nelson and his sailors would haul their heavy naval guns up to the heights around the city and fight the gunners of the French garrison for firepower supremacy. If Nelson's artillery was able to breach the defenses, an assault might be revisited. Otherwise, it would at least give the restless Nelson something to do and put some pressure on the garrison. Nelson's impatience would cost him dearly. On July 12, 1794, Nelson was inspecting a battery when it received a very near miss from French artillery. The entrenchments around the cannon absorbed much of the blast, but the air was suddenly thick with shrapnel and debris, and the force of impact knocked everyone nearby to the ground. Accounts differ, but this much is clear. When Captain Nelson stood up, he had no obvious physical wounds, but his vision was severely impaired. 
and would remain so for the rest of his life. Nelson's partial blindness is an indelible part of his image, to the point where modern depictions usually show him wearing an eye patch, even though there's very little evidence of him ever wearing one during his lifetime. We've already discussed one of the most famous incidents of his career, when he held a spyglass up to his bad eye during the Battle of Copenhagen, and told his subordinates he could not see the signal to retreat. It probably never happened, but it's a big part of the Nelson legend. But amazingly, there's no real consensus as to the exact nature of this eye injury. In his official request for a disability pension, Nelson described the injury this way, quote, A total deprivation of sight for every common occasion in life, the consequence of the loss of part of the crystal of my right eye. End quote. Nelson believed the culprit was a piece of stone kicked up by the blast, which struck him in the eyeball and physically damaged the lens. However, it's worth noting that Nelson actually had to fight London for his pension, and ultimately received less than he asked for. And the government wasn't just being stingy, there was some genuine confusion as to the degree and nature of Nelson's blindness. By his own account, his right eye could still discern light from darkness, and even sense some movement. This, combined with his description of the incident, has led some modern scholars to suggest Nelson did not suffer any wound to the eye, but rather a severe detached retina, or even a rare type of autoimmune condition that was triggered by the trauma of the blast. These explanations seem to fit better with some accounts of Nelson's disability. Then again, with the huge number of wounds and ailments over the course of Nelson's life, it can be hard to determine which symptoms came from which malady. For instance, Nelson suffered from light sensitivity, which was so intense that he had a tailor install a retractable green glass visor into one of his hats, kind of like proto-sunglasses. Sensitivity to light is a common symptom of many eye conditions and could be an indication that there was something much more complicated than physical damage going on with Nelson's vision. However, it's also common in malaria patients, so it could have just been those old symptoms acting up, or simply the result of overexertion. After all, his duties as a naval officer put a lot of strain on his remaining good eye. Believe it or not, a lot of ink has been spilled over this mystery of Nelson's blindness. I could spend the rest of the episode digging into the various theories and arguments over the eyeball of a man who has been dead for over 200 years. But we have to move on if we're going to finish the story of Nelson's rise to fame. Calvi surrendered on August 10th, 1794. With the fall of the last Republican stronghold, the island belonged to Powley and the British. The struggle for Corsica was over, at least on paper. Nelson's work on shore was done, and he returned to the Agamemnon. Despite their early success, the British position in the Mediterranean was beginning to look weaker. The Republicans retook Toulon, thanks in no small part to the efforts of a young Corsican artillery officer. Not only had the Royal Navy lost an important base, the port facilities and much of the French Mediterranean fleet were recaptured intact. The thought of the British leaving behind so many of their erstwhile allies in Toulon to face Republican retribution greatly disturbed Nelson. He would later write about the evacuation of the city as if he'd been there himself, 
even though the Agamemnon spent very little time at Toulon, and was miles away when the city fell. It wasn't just the tragedy and injustice of so many people likely facing execution, it was a matter of honor. The Royal Navy had pledged to protect Toulon, and failed. This incident probably contributed to Nelson's growing sense of personal mission to destroy the revolution. In Italy, Britain's allies looked wobbly. Nelson feared that with Toulon back in French hands, the Republicans were poised to sweep across the Alps and overrun the whole peninsula, and Corsica was proving to be a much more elusive prize than anyone had envisioned. It was important that the fleet win a victory to remind everyone in the western Mediterranean of the power of the Royal Navy. The perfect opportunity came in the spring of 1795. A large Republican fleet set sail from Toulon, and the British were close enough to catch them. The two fleets met near Genoa on March 11, 1795. The French were not interested in fighting, but the British were, and gave chase as the Republicans tried to escape. Amazingly, this was the first major fleet encounter of Nelson's career. He'd fought in dozens of small engagements, and even a few larger ones on land but never in a big multi-ship naval battle. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For days, the Republicans successfully dodged the British fleet. But on the morning of March 13th, they made a mistake. The French ships Victoire and Saïra collided, resulting in damage to the masts of the Saïra, slowing her down significantly. This enabled the HMS Inconstant, a small, fast-moving frigate under Captain Thomas Fremantle, to catch up with the Saïra and engage. It was a desperate battle. The Saïra was by far the bigger, more powerful ship, but nearly crippled. Vessels from both fleets shifted course to join the action. Like a predator, Captain Fremantle went after weakened and isolated prey hoping the rest of his pack would catch up with him and take it down before the herd could do anything to stop them. It was touch and go while the two ships squared off. Whichever side's reinforcements arrived first would likely win the engagement. All doubt was removed when a broadside ripped through the rear of the Saira, killing or wounding roughly 10% of the crew at a single stroke. Nelson and the Agamemnon had arrived. They pulled off a perfect textbook maneuver, coming up behind the Saira, then turning on a dime at a close distance to rake the French with a devastating broadside. Both fleets now fully committed to the action. 
the British hoping to capture or destroy the stricken Sa'ira, the French hoping to protect it. Due to poor wind and sea conditions, the battle lasted hours, well into the next day, almost like it was being fought in slow motion. All told, things went very well for the Royal Navy. Several British vessels were badly damaged, but none captured or sunk. Meanwhile, they managed to capture two French ships, both large modern ships of the line, significant prizes. The hero of the battle was obviously Captain Fremantle, who had taken on the Saira in a small frigate when he was massively outgunned, which successfully forced the French into a battle in which the Royal Navy had the upper hand. However, when the people of Britain opened their newspapers to read about the battle, they got a slightly different version of the story, one in which Horatio Nelson was the man of the hour, and poor Captain Fremantle barely got a mention. As was often the case in Napoleon's battles, Nelson was the only one among the senior leadership of either side who felt the need to publicize his own version of the battle, and so Nelson's narrative came to dominate. I find it interesting that Nelson felt the need to undertake this PR campaign. He had undeniably performed well, but that wasn't enough. Nelson wanted a story in which he was the sole, undisputed hero. He even added a ludicrous ending in which the entire British fleet offers a salute to the HMS Agamemnon. This wasn't purely about professional jealousy. Captain Fremantle was a friend of Nelson's, and would remain so. Nelson simply needed to have all the glory for himself. Just as we saw with Napoleon, at this stage of his career, ambition was everything. Nelson's shamelessness seems to have paid off. He was still relatively unknown to the general public, but among military and political circles, he was once again being discussed as one of Britain's most promising young naval officers. Soon after, Nelson was promoted to Commodore and reassigned to a newer, better ship, the HMS Captain. His career was on the upswing once again, but Britain's fortunes in the wider war were declining. By now, Napoleon Bonaparte had taken command of the Army of Italy, and had already begun the series of astonishing victories which would bring almost all of Italy under French dominance, just as Nelson had feared. The Netherlands had also fallen to the Republicans, and the majority of the powerful Dutch navy now sailed under the flag of the Batavian Republic, which was allied to France. But worst of all for the British Mediterranean fleet, Spain signed an alliance with France, and declared war on the coalition. The first consequence of this development was felt on Corsica. The British had fallen out with Pauli, and were struggling to build a legitimate, sustainable regime on the island, with very few local allies. With Spain entering the war, their position became untenable. Most British personnel and resources were evacuated from the island, which soon fell to the Republicans once again. The long-term consequences of Spain's declaration of war were far more serious. The second, third, and fourth greatest naval powers in Europe were now united against the Royal Navy. Now, those fleets were scattered all over the continent, and Britain still held the edge in the quality of officers and sailors. But this was a serious threat to the dominance of the Royal Navy, probably the biggest since the American War of Independence. To meet this challenge, the British Mediterranean fleet sailed west, into the Atlantic, where they would attack shipping between Spain and her colonies, and attempt to draw the Spanish fleet into battle. 
Better to engage the enemy fleets now while they were separated than allow them time to unite. The fleet was now commanded by 62-year-old Admiral John Jervis. He was one of the most respected officers in the British Navy, but also had a reputation as a stickler. So did Nelson, so perhaps it's no surprise that the two men immediately liked each other. Their opportunity came in early February 1797. The main Spanish fleet under Admiral Don José de Córdoba y Ramos left its base at Cartagena for the commercial port of Cádiz to escort a convoy carrying mercury to the Americas. It may seem crazy to risk an entire fleet for a shipment of mercury, but mercury was desperately needed to refine the huge volume of silver mined in Spanish Peru and Mexico. The entire fiscal edifice of the Spanish Empire depended on regular silver shipments from the New World. Indeed, Spanish silver was one of the cornerstones of the entire global economy. You can always buy more ships with silver, but it's quite a bit more difficult to convert warships into liquid cash. So this mercury shipment was not something that could simply wait for the war to end. Jervis and his fleet caught up with the Spanish on Valentine's Day, 1797, just off of Cape St. Vincent in southern Portugal. The weather was not ideal. Cordoba's ships had the wind on their side. It would be difficult for the British to catch them, let alone maneuver into a favorable position for the subsequent battle. Nonetheless, Jervis signaled to prepare for action, and began to form his ships into an attack column. As the British drew closer, the size of the enemy fleet became clear. On the British flagship, a sentry called down to the deck that he could see the mainsails of eight ships, then twenty sails. The British only had fifteen ships of the line, plus a few small support vessels, so this was not good news. Then the sentry called down again, twenty-seven sails. Finally, Jervis called back, quote, Enough, sir, no more of that. The die is cast, and if there are fifty sail, I will go through them. End quote. The British were committed. There was no turning back now. Besides, for all Jervis knew, the Spanish fleet was headed to rendezvous with the French, and he really would be hopelessly outnumbered if that happened. Much better to fight them now, when at least the odds were relatively close. And so, just after eleven in the morning, the signal went out, engage the enemy. The distance between the two fleets began to close. Sailors and officers rushed to make the final preparations for action the Battle of Cape St. Vincent was beginning to take shape. With the wind on their side, the bulk of the Spanish fleet would probably escape. But if he was quick, Jervis would be able to pounce on the stragglers, possibly engage with the rear of the convoy if he was lucky. But this would probably be a relatively small, limited battle, not unlike the Battle of Genoa. Then, something surprising happened. A ship near the back of the British line suddenly darted out of formation. Rather than following Jervis's course, which would have taken the long way threading between Cordoba's lines, this lone ship was now sailing on the most direct route to the center of the Spanish convoy. As you have probably guessed, this ship was the HMS Captain, commanded by Commodore Horatio Nelson. It's hard to overstate what a risky maneuver this was. The HMS captain was relatively small for a ship of the line, just 74 guns. She was now on a direct course towards three Spanish ships, the 80-gun San Nicolas, 
the 112-gun San Josef, and the Spanish flagship, the Santísima Trinidad, which boasted a whopping 130 guns, making it the largest warship in the world. If other captains followed Nelson's lead, there was a good chance that superior British seamanship would win the day. But if Nelson had to fight alone, the HMS captain would almost inevitably be torn to pieces by overwhelming Spanish firepower. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Royal Navy did give its officers some latitude to act on their own initiative and interpret their orders as they saw fit, but it was rare to see an officer flout his orders quite so brazenly. If this maneuver resulted in disaster, Nelson would likely face severe punishment, assuming he survived. There were even precedents of officers being executed under similar circumstances. A lot depended on Admiral Jervis's reaction. If he signaled Nelson to return to the line, and Nelson violated a direct order, failure was certain. But as I mentioned, Jervis liked Nelson, so when he saw the HMS captain pull out of the line, and it became clear what she was doing, Jervis signaled to the fleet, quote, engage the enemy more closely, end quote. That's a little obscure, but the implication would have been immediately clear to the officers of the fleet. Jervis was giving his unofficial blessing to Nelson's attack, and tacit permission for other captains to join in, if they saw fit. Nelson and his officers must have breathed a heavy sigh of relief when they saw nearby ships pulling out of the line to follow the HMS captain. Still, even with this support, Nelson's ship was nearly blasted to smithereens. For an hour, he desperately maneuvered to get as close as possible to the enemy line, taking fire from as many as six different Spanish ships. Finally, in the mid-afternoon, he was able to get alongside the San Nicolas and board her. Nelson himself joined in the attack, which was rare for an officer of his rank, but contrary to most popular depictions of the battle, he didn't actually lead from the front. Another Spanish ship, the San Josef, pulled up alongside the San Nicolas to offer assistance, but it was too late. After a short, sharp fight, the captain of the San Nicolas surrendered to the British. With the capture of a ship of the line, Nelson's bold maneuver had succeeded beyond any doubt. But he didn't stop there. The San Josef had pulled up alongside the San Nicolas so fast that the two ships had become entangled. As the British took possession of their prize, Spanish sailors above rushed to cut ropes and separate sails so they could pull the two ships apart. But they were not fast enough. For the second time in only a few minutes, Nelson gave the order to board, and the British sailors and marines swarmed over the newly captured San Nicolas and onto the San Josef. The Spanish officers on deck were so surprised, they surrendered without a fight. Even today, this stands as one of the rarest feats in naval history, one boarding party taking two ships in immediate succession. Nelson recalled, quote, On the quarterdeck of a Spanish ship of the line, extravagant as the story may seem, I received the swords of the vanquished Spaniards, which, as I received them, I gave to one of my bargemen, who put them, with the greatest of sang-froid, under his arm. Thus fell these great ships. End quote. It is funny to see Nelson begging pardon for the extravagance of the story, when we know full well he played up every extravagant detail as much as possible. By now, Jervis and the main body of the fleet were beginning to arrive on the scene. Amazingly, 
the massive Spanish flagship, the Santísima Trinidad, was forced to strike her colors, lower the flag, indicating surrender. However, other Spanish ships were able to come to her aid before the British took possession. What everyone assumed was going to be a small, limited engagement had turned into a major battle, with the Royal Navy taking a clear early advantage. As one British sailor wrote in his memoirs, quote, We gave them their valentines in style. End quote. By early evening, it was all over. Two more Spanish ships of the line were captured, although not by Nelson. Nearly a thousand Spanish sailors were killed or wounded. Over 3,000 were captured, which is an absolutely eye-popping number for an 18th century naval battle. Nelson's boldness had turned a minor engagement into a triumph. The Spanish had a huge number of sailors and officers to replace, as well as four ships of the line. Many of their surviving vessels were badly damaged and would need extensive repairs. Spain was unlikely to play any major role in the war at sea for the foreseeable future. In recognition of the victory, Admiral Jervis was made first Earl of St. Vincent. Nelson was knighted and promoted to Rear Admiral. For his part in the battle, the Spanish Admiral, Don José de Córdoba y Ramos, was dismissed from the Navy and banned from the royal court. The experience completely broke him, and he slipped into an unhappy retirement. Once again, we are heavily reliant on Nelson's own account for our information on this battle. And as we've established, he was not always a reliable narrator. It's possible some of the details of his story were exaggerated or embellished, but the core narrative is all true. Nelson had finally pulled off a deed worthy of his huge ambitions. When news of the battle reached home, Nelson, Jervis, and the fleet were celebrated, but it wouldn't be until after the Battle of the Nile the following year that Nelson gained the status of a public celebrity. However, Cape St. Vincent firmly established him as a legend within the Royal Navy. The story of him disobeying orders, then capturing two enemy ships in one go, was simply too good to not be retold by every sailor and officer in the fleet. Apparently, a joke spread around the Royal Navy. Did you hear? Nelson has patented a new type of bridge for boarding enemy ships? I guess people had different uh, comic sensibilities back then. Not to tarnish Nelson's victory, but I think it's telling that even at his finest hour, he couldn't help but make enemies. When Nelson boarded the San Josef, the second of his two prizes, it was also engaged with another Royal Navy ship, the HMS Prince George, commanded by Sir William Parker. The guns of the Prince George had done some significant damage, and it was probably the distraction of this engagement which enabled Nelson to board from the other side so easily. The Royal Navy's regulations on prizes allowed more than one ship to share the credit in circumstances like these, but Nelson had no interest in doing so. He was the man of the hour, and backed up by his new friend, Admiral Jervis, so no one was interested in listening to Parker's side of the story. And so, instead of parting with a fraction of the fortune and glory he won that day, Nelson made an enemy for life. Parker never forgot the slight. But Nelson had finally won the spotlight, and he would never give it up. I think we'll leave things there for now. Next time, we'll continue following Nelson's career, 
and delve into his personal life, which would soon become almost as infamous as his exploits at sea. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.